0: Lord Jesus, we pray that as we come to your word, uh, you would indeed show us Christ, fill us with your spirit to be able to uh, understand it and uh, help uh, us to change, to not resist uh, the work of your spirit this coming week uh, in light of what we see uh, as we look to your word now. Amen. So carrying on uh, in the book of uh, Acts, we're picking up on page uh, 1103 and starting uh, at uh, chapter 7, verse 35. And uh, for this section, uh, we don't need to do actions. We'll uh, just carry on straight through. Uh, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to, the, to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch. And the star of your God, Rephan, and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Well, do keep that... Uh, open. In front of us, we'll be uh, going back through it um, at uh, various points and looking closer at various bits. Now, a little while ago, uh, a good few years ago, a friend of mine left his maths A-level exam saying to everyone that it went really well. I, I wasn't in the exam, I didn't do maths, but he came out saying he wouldn't be surprised if it was if not higher than that. Every single question absolutely nailed it. He said it was one of his greatest performances. So it was quite a shock on results day when he opens up his results and he finds that he's got actually a U, which is uh, back in the day was one of the, the worst marks that you could possibly get. He'd managed somehow to completely misunderstand the entire maths paper, charged ahead with his false understanding, came out the other side thinking he was right and fantastic. And it turned out, in fact, he was very wrong. And it was a rude awakening on results day. That would be a disastrous thing to happen to us as we approach God's word, the Bible. For us to come away looking foolish because we simply haven't understood what is happening would be a very bad thing. So let me ask, do we understand how God works in his word? Do we get how he achieves his purposes? It's a question that is uh, pretty puzzling. And uh, for some, it has truly been a matter of life and death. So if you're brand new to the barge today or if you've been here for a very, very long time. Today, we want to get to grip with how God works in his word. And we see uh, the answer to this in this great big passage that we read today. The account of the stoning of Stephen. And there's a massive misunderstanding at work. So Stephen, we saw last week, uh, was uh, one of these guys appointed by the apostles to serve the, the widows of the church, to make sure that practical jobs were, were getting done and that the apostles could focus on the teaching uh, of the word. He had the apostles lay their hands on him, appoint him for his job, and he's going about it. But there are people who do not like the sort of things that he's doing and saying. So in chapter 6, verse 9, people rose up and disputed with Stephen. But verse 10, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they get some guys to complain about him. Verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. What an accusation. Verse 12, They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that uh, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs of Moses delivered to us. What's what's their accusation? It's that Jesus is against this place. That's the temple and Jerusalem, and the law. That's the revelation of God's character and instruction for following him given to Moses in the book of Exodus. Now, this is pretty outrageous stuff that Stephen has therefore been saying to them because the temple and the law, well, these were understood to be where God was at work, where the action was. The temple was where God's presence was supposed to be, and where the priests would go to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And the law was their direct revelation of God's word, the foundation of all their society, and directing all things towards God's glory. So in Jerusalem, there's a a big establishment set up around these institutions, the, the temple and the law. Hence why when Stephen is accused of speaking against them, he is brought before the high priest in chapter 7, verse 1, who asks, are these things so? There's a big misunderstanding, and it has a lot at stake. These elders and priests are the same that had just recently killed Jesus, the same that had arrested Peter and John, and then all the apostles. Their objection is that Jesus is opposed to the way that God works. Or another way of putting it, might even be how do Christians reconcile that in the Old Testament, it seems that God is working through his temple and upholds his law. And in the New Testament, it can appear that Jesus is opposed to those things. So are Christians actually cherry picking, uh, picking and choosing bits of the Bible that we want to focus on? Or is it the case that the Bible has one consistent picture of God working? And that Jesus is actually the most full revelation of this work. Stephen's answer is one gigantic sermon. The old joke of which is that Stephen clearly knew how it was going to end. And he's playing for time um, and making sure he makes it as long as possible. But he actually shows that much like my friend who got his maths paper completely wrong, they too have misunderstood God and how he works. So the first part of the answer we can see is that Jesus fulfills the temple. Look at how verse 2 begins, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And this is the big question, really. Where is the God of glory at work? Where's the God of glory? Where was he at work in Abraham's story? The answer is obviously not Jerusalem. And then look at the end of verse seven. After they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The sign of circumcision, that marker of God's Old Testament people, and his son, Abraham's son, Isaac, father of Jacob, who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel, all these markers that identified these are the true people of God, where did it happen? Well, Stephen's making the point, not Jerusalem, not the temple. So verse 9, we move to Joseph's story. It begins, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him. Where was the God of glory at work? Well, Egypt there, not Jerusalem, not the temple. Jacob dies in Egypt, verse 15. He's buried in Shechem. Jacob, who literally is renamed Israel, is not buried in Jerusalem. Stephen moves to the story of Moses. God's people have become slaves in Egypt. Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's palace after being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Yet when he was 40, he kills someone as he tries to protect an oppressed Israelite. God's own people reject Moses. And verse 29, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Go to verse 30. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of the fire, in a bush. Where was God at work? Not Jerusalem. We'll look more at Moses shortly, but even when God's people are led by King David and then his son Solomon builds a temple, God reminds them. In verse 47, it was Solomon who built a house for him. That's the temple. But verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen is giving a great big overview of God working up to the building of the temple. And it's showing that Stephen is, in fact, more biblical than the people who are complaining about him. He's showing the Old Testament scriptures are clear, that the temple wasn't God's literal home, because how can humans contain him? A single consistent thread runs through scripture in relation to this place that his opposers are so keen to defend. God is not restricted to one place. He appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph in Egypt. He came to Moses in Midian. God's presence cannot be localized. No building can confine him or restrict his activity. If he has any home, it's with his people, isn't it? The God of glory is at work in the life of Abraham, in the life of Joseph, in the life of Moses, David, Solomon. Stephen is making the point that if they read their Bibles, they would see that God is more concerned with his people than he is with any one place. And it's biblically consistent with what we see in the life of Jesus. So it's why Jesus refers to himself as the temple, because he was quite literally the presence of God on earth. And it's why, and so incredible that as believers, we're now having God's Spirit living in us, makes each one of us God's temple, God's presence. And so it's not that Stephen is saying Jesus is against the temple. He's saying, you temple establishment, you aren't actually temple enough. You've become so focused on the building that you don't understand that God has always been at work with his people. This is why it's so damaging when anybody associates God's work and presence with anything other than what he says he works through his word. Because it'll be all too easy to get it far too wrong. So take, maybe as a historical example, the spread of the British Empire. With it came became a great spread of Christianity, and that can be a good thing but it is a bad thing when instead of spreading the good news of Jesus the spread became more about being british so rather than people being told of the the wonderful news of Jesus dying in our place so our wrongdoing can be forgiven and our relationship with god restored rather than being told that believers now have god the holy spirit living in us so we no longer need to go to a temple and have priests perform sacrifices for us because it's all been done on the cross rather than Being told that, in some places in empire, people were simply told, you become a Christian because you're now owned and ruled by Britain. You go to church because you are now run by us. That's what we do. Colonial Christianity, it's not biblical Christianity. And so when we also hear, isn't Christianity just a Western religion, a colonial invention, we can actually point out, much like Stephen does here, it's not the Bible that's wrong. It's actually people, the people who've got God wrong, associating his work not with what he does through his word, but with some other cultural institution. That's the objection about the temple, the place that Stephen deals with. But what about the law? Because look back at chapter 6 verse 13. That was, the temple was part of what they were objecting to Stephen saying. What was the other part? It was the law. Verse 13, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We could say that while the argument about Jesus fulfilling the temple was about the people overemphasizing the importance of the temple, thinking that it's the only place that God works. Here, in relation to the law, Stephen shows that that God's people have never actually taken the law seriously enough. So let's look at the the real rejection of the law of Moses. Look what Stephen says about Moses' birth. In verse uh, 20, chapter 7, verse 20, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight not only was his birth God ordained but in fact his calling was God ordained so in verses 31 to 32 when Moses saw the the burning bush he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look where there came to look there came a voice of the lord this is talking about him encountering this Burning bush on the side of Mount Sinai. Verse 32 says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses trembled and did not bear to look. It's God giving Moses a commission. In verses 33 to 34, go to Egypt and deliver God's people. This appointment as ruler and deliverer of God's people, the the leader of them was made by God himself. Verse 35, Moses, whom you rejected, saying, uh, who made you a ruler and judge? Uh, This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand out of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Stephen is saying, Moses' birth, mission, ministry, appointment as the leader of God's people was all by God. And it's the same God that gives Moses the living Word. That's the word that Stephen uses for the law that Moses received. So look at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness after rescuing his people from Egypt. He's in the wilderness uh, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Moses received the word of God in order to give it to God's people. So Moses was God's appointed man with God's appointed mandate for God's appointed ministry and God's appointed message. But what was the reaction of God's people towards Moses and to the law? Well, verse 35, Stephen calls him this Moses whom you rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? Or well, from verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And their hearts turned to Egypt. As if it wasn't bad enough that they uh, rejected Moses, they turned back to where he'd rescued them from. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do know, not know what became uh, of him. They instead ask in verse 40, Aaron, to make us a God who will go before us. And they bow down to idols. This was the rejection of God's law law and the rejection therefore of God. And it's the same story with the other prophets. Stephen quotes two of them, Amos in verses forty-two to forty-three, and Isaiah in verses forty-eight to fifty. But in both of these contexts, these prophets in their context are rebuking God's people at the time. So Stephen is saying, Israel God's people, you've failed to exhibit faithfulness to God's appointed law and to the prophets in your past. Your history is not one of taking the law seriously. So why are you now complaining to me about the law? It's sort of what Stephen is saying. He accuses them of doing the exact same as their fathers. Look with me at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. That's the Old Testament way of saying they are unfaithful and not truly one of God's people. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one who you have now portrayed and murdered. This is talking about the prophets who predicted the coming of Jesus. They were killed. That's well documented in the Old Testament. And now Jesus himself, Stephen says, you killed. Verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Stephen's pointing out the basic fact that despite them talking a good game about prioritizing the law, they have not kept it. And they're accusing him of not doing so, of speaking against the law. And he turns around and says, you're just like your fathers, who always didn't keep the law. Look at the example of Moses. In fact, he goes further than that. He points out that they have killed the one that they claimed to be waiting for. So if anyone stands condemned, is it Stephen or is it the temple establishment? Condemned under the law, it is the temple establishment. Now, the question Stephen might well then face is, well, are Christians supposed to follow, therefore, all the law of Moses? If the temple aren't taking it seriously enough, should all Christians be taking it more seriously and, in fact, following every letter of the law? But it's revealing, isn't it, that the objection to Stephen's preaching is uh, that he's speaking against the law, I think that's an indication that Stephen is talking of Jesus actually fulfilling the law. So Jesus lived a perfect complete life, completely holy, never sinning, showing the perfect righteousness of God. So Stephen is preaching, I think, that the law has been fulfilled. And so we might sometimes hear, well Christians, you you cherry pick the the rules that you want to follow. You're never Consistent. It's an objection we sometimes hear. But the the big biblical picture that Stephen is pointing out is that uh, we aren't to reject it, but we should see it fulfilled in Christ. So when the high priests and elders are asking Stephen, why are you rejecting the law? He turns around and shows them that actually it's always been the way that God's people have rejected the law. And that's epitomized in their rejection of Christ. And so the big application for us today needs to be looking at, well, the application that Stephen gives them in his sermon. Verse 51, and realistically the whole passage, is about the resistance of God's people to God's work. So look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did and so do you. The picture that Stephen has painted of the history of God's people is one of resisting God and rejecting his will. It was epitomized in the fact that they rejected Jesus Christ and killed him. So how today? How might we resist the Holy Spirit? Well, one big way is actually the rejection of Jesus, the, the Holy One, the Redeemer, who God's people were waiting for and rejected and killed. The same good news message that the apostles have been preaching all the way through Acts, that we can actually have forgiveness of sins, no longer facing rejection from God because of our sin, but instead being welcomed into relationship with him. That good news is available to us today. So if you're not a Christian here today, you might not think of yourself as resisting the Holy Spirit. But in reality, if we're rejecting the gospel, then we are rejecting and resisting God's Spirit. So if you're not a Christian here today, we would absolutely love to... uh, Talk more about the gospel with you. To in fact invite you to see uh, Jesus for yourself as an adult, thinking uh, through what He did on the cross for you and why it's such good news. Do talk to us after uh, the service about different ways that can that can happen. But please, uh, don't resist the Holy Spirit today. If we're sitting here as Christians, we might think, okay, well, uh, how might I be resisting the Holy Spirit? Well, one way would simply be resisting the conviction of the Spirit. Uh, God's Spirit uh, moves into his people's lives and uh, convicts them of sin. So if we're living in on- ongoing sin, if we're uh, unrepentant, not turning away from sin, but still going our own way in all these different areas of our life, well, the big application for us is to stop resisting that conviction. What we know is wrong by God's Word and the work of his Spirit in our hearts, we should turn from that sin, repent from of it and instead produce the fruit of the holy spirit that might be a potential way of resisting even uh, the good work that the holy spirit is doing in our life uh, the ways in which we know that we uh, could in fact be more godly uh, we could in fact live more like the lord jesus and uh, the holy spirit bearing fruit in our lives is something we need to not resist what's the reaction of the people uh, listening to Stephen's sermon. We'll have a look at verses 54 through to eight-three, And we can see that there's, for even us today, an expectation of persecution. So verse 54, When they heard these things, they were in a rage. They ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, I've seen the heavens opened, an allusion to Jacob's vision of a ladder to heaven. And the son of man standing at the right hand of God, an allusion to the prophet David, Daniel. They cried out in a, in a loud voice, uh, stopped their ears and rushed him together. They cast him out of the city and stone him. Witnesses lay down Uh, their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, cries with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said that, he fell asleep. It's quite a harrowing and violent end to Stephen's life. Stephen's final moments, though, they echo the final moments of the saviour that Stephen worshipped and served. Luke records these sentences and almost refers so dramatically back to the same things happening to Jesus. Jesus cast from the city. Uh, Stephen's stoning is a mob justice lynching more than an official execution, yet it's still the mob justice that Jesus faced. His prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, is similar to that which Luke records Jesus saying, Before he died, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And yet that's not Stephen's final words. His final words, he spoke a third sentence. When he falls to his knees, he cries aloud, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. In verse 60, that's a reminder of uh, the first words from the cross, which Luke recorded, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And that's the beginning of the systematic persecution Of the church. So at the beginning of uh, chapter 8, 1 to 3, we see Saul approving of the persecution and going on to ravage the church, it says. Now, today in Britain, we live in a very fortunate situation where we don't expect violent lynching for the preaching of the word of God. That's not the case all around the globe today. And so Uh, The persecution that Christians can expect globally, we need to be praying for, uh, for the strength of Christians there and for the easing of persecution. But many of us going into the week, well, we might be worried in different ways uh, of maybe the social rejection of being a Christian. Um, Maybe we're worried of the consequences at work of, of being known as a Christian, even if just what people think of us do they will they think i'm as smart as everybody else will i think i'm slightly uh, nutty if i say i do actually believe what the bible says what helped stephen in his persecution well it was this wonderful vision of the risen jesus that reality of jesus exalted above all things at the right hand of god with the glory of god That's a wonderful vision, and it's not something that everyone is guaranteed to get. In fact, later, when other persecutions are accounted for, we don't see this vision happening every single time. I think it's one of these moments in Acts, uh, this being something that we can look back on and now have confidence when we ourselves face persecution in whatever form. Because it's a glimpse of a wonderful spiritual reality, of the risen Jesus reigning over all things. And so, with the strength of that vision, as we talk to our family about our faith, as we go into work and are known as a Christian, as we have conversations at school uh, with peers, we can have the boldness to say, even if social rejection comes our way, even if teasing or anything else comes our way, we can have the boldness to say, Father, forgive them, as Stephen does to those stoning him. So as we walk out of here today, will we be like my friend with his maths paper, a great big misunderstanding, uh, leading to looking foolish and also to completely failing? Or instead, will we get to grips and see that the Bible is one consistent, wonderful picture of God's work in the lives of his people through the gospel? And so will we resist the Holy Spirit? His free offer of mercy and his wonderful and great sanctifying work of making us more holy and convicting us of sin. As we go into whatever situation Monday morning faces us, will we have the confidence maybe to expect persecution, but also uh, to have that wonderful vision in our mind of Stephen's vision of the risen Lord Jesus reigning and ruling above all things. We're going to take a moment and just reflect on this and then we're going to continue in prayer.